This podcast is brought to you by Athene. As the world changes, so does perspective. Is the sun setting on a bull market or is dawn breaking on opportunity? As a leading provider of fixed annuities, Athene was built for times like these. Working together, the future couldn't be brighter. Athene, driven to do more. I'm Steve Forbes, and this is What's Ahead. Today, I sit down with Danny Meyer, remarkable restaurateur in New York City and beyond, and CEO of Union Square Hospitality Group. We talk about his pioneering practices in the restaurant business and in leadership, the devastating impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the food service industry, and what he hopes to see change as we move forward into the post-pandemic world. But first, What's ahead in politics? The leadoff presidential debate takes place on September 29th, and under the radar are two issues that will dramatically come to the fore. The first, should statehood be granted to the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico? Many Democrats figure these new states would give them four surefire seats in the Senate. The second issue, if Democrats win the Senate and White House in November, they could take ideological control of the Supreme Court by increasing the number of justices from nine to, say, 15. They could also increase the number of appellate judges, effectively nullifying the judges Trump has appointed during his presidency. As we approach the election, I'll also be keeping an eye on the voting by mail debate, particularly surrounding deadlines for mail-in ballots. And now, my conversation with Danny Meyer. We have a special guest today, Danny Meyer. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. Steve, thank you. And um, can I start by saying how nice it is to be with you, Steve? You and your family have been really cheerleaders for the entire restaurant industry as long as I can remember. And I've shared this story with you, but I've got to share it with your listeners, which is that um, while my dad was alive, he had been in the hospitality industry. He had been in the travel business and every single year at uh, some point in December, I could count the days till I was going to get a letter from my dad where he had torn out the pages of Forbes magazine and highlighted all the restaurants that I needed to go to in New York if I was ever going to plan to measure up. And then at various times of the year, I would get the other letters from him that would be the, the red, yellow, and green Forbes indicators. Right. And what he was really telling me was that I was not measuring up to all these other places. And <laughs> unfortunately, the first time that uh, Union Square Cafe and then Gramercy Tavern, and then in subsequent years, many of our restaurants, the Modern, made the Forbes end of the year list. He had he had passed away, so I couldn't hold those pieces of paper up in, <laughs> in front of his face to show him how proud I wanted to make him. Uh, but so anyway, it, I, I feel very, very grateful to be with you here. That's great. Really appreciate it. You head up one of the most remarkable organizations in a most remarkable industry. It's called Union Square Hospitality Group. Over 20 restaurants, most of them in New York City, but also D.C., Washington, D.C., and Las Vegas. You've got Union Square Events Catering. You do operational consulting and creating raves. 
which is a leadership development workshop. Couldn't do it this year, but three days where people learn how to do things right. You're also involved with Entertainment Hospitality Investments, founder and still chairman of Shake Shack, a publicly held company, and it engages in fine casual. And as a happy customer, I can attest to that. I think the last numbers I saw you had before COVID, 278 facilities. And amazingly, these places were averaging $4 million of revenue. Phenomenal. And you also have been a great pioneer, whether it's what you did with Union Square Cafe, where you didn't make it just French or just Italian. You wanted a happy place where people get all kinds of good food. You have initiated no smoking before it was the fashion or the law. You also did no tipping, which we'll get to in a moment because you're trying to deal with the disparity of salaries between the wait staff and the kitchen staff. Very, very serious, as we've learned recently. And wine lists, you didn't do it by appellation, but by taste, many of the things you do. Now, we all know the restaurant industry is important. I think there are over 600,000 before COVID restaurants in this country employing over 10 million people, but it's not just a service business. You see it as a higher calling, it has a moral purpose. It's about hospitality, which you talk about in your book. Food, then you say, is secondary to something that matters even more creating positive, uplifting outcomes for human experiences and human relationships. So restaurants is not just food, it's not just economics, but gets to the real soul, the essence of human relationships. How did you come to that realization? You've certainly done your homework <laughs> on me anyway. Look, I think that those articulations of why hospitality matters so much came to me sort of late in my career, maybe 10 years into the career, because I had been doing a lot of these things intuitively as a 27-year-old opening Union Square Cafe on 16th Street, but not intentionally. And I think there came a point when, as every organization does, we hit some roadblocks and I couldn't figure out what kind of organizational changes to make to get to the next level. And so I hired somebody who had come very highly recommended. She's still in business. Her name is Erica Anderson. She's got a company called Proteus. And she described herself as an organizational development consultant. And I had no idea what that meant. She said, well, if it's any easier, just call me a business shrink. And she said, I'll be glad to work for you, but not if you want me to tell you what's wrong. I'll be glad to work for you to help you realize what you're doing so right. She said, because you strike me as someone who wants to feel the thorns instead of smelling the roses. And most, most businesses do better if they double down or triple down on the things that they intuitively do well. They just haven't stopped to name them. And so she helped to get me to talk about this stuff and get my colleagues to talk about this stuff. And what we realized was really the basis for what we now do very, very intentionally and it's really focusing on three things. How can we make it a better place to work? How can we make it a better place to dine? And how can we make enough money so that we can keep this thing going? And she helped me to understand that while making money was not the goal of our business, it was the fuel without which we would not be able to get any of these higher purpose goals done. You described how you had to learn how one to become a CEO, but also in people developing their own careers, I loved your 51%, 49%. The technical prowess, yes, that'll get you far, but then the next level is hospitality, intuitive, emotional. 
that uh, you're not going to find in a textbook, but if you're going to become an effective leader, it's not just the know-how, it's uh, that thing you call hospitality. It is, and, and I've always described hospitality as that we want to get 100 on our test. We want to get 100 on our test as employers. We want to get 100 on our test as restaurateurs. And so our recipe is kind of simple. It's two ingredients only. It's performance and hospitality. And it's 49 points performance. How well we did the thing we did. And 51% hospitality. How good did we make you feel? So I always looked at performance, which is, did we do what you expected us to do? right? Did we get the right food to the right person at the right table at the right temperature at the right time and not spill on you when we poured your wine and get the right coat back to you and have the temperature set at the right control? So all those things are performance and you expect us to perform. And by the way, performance, that 49 points, if we did everything perfectly, which we never do, by the way, the most number of points we would get would be 49 for all the things you expect us to do well. And that leaves a gaping 51 points for how did we make you feel? And the great thing about really focusing on hospitality, which is the way you make the recipient of your performance feel, and the way they want to feel, quite simply, is that you're on their side. I know that sounds like that's obvious, but if you think about every you know, business transaction you have with anybody, whether it's buying a cup of coffee or buying an airplane ticket, you either have a sense that they're on your side or you don't. Well, you talked about people calling for reservations. You mentioned that many times you're not going to get the exact time you want, but you wanted the feeling that this is not a gatekeeper. This is someone there to help you out. This is an agent who is on your side. And that's the difference. An agent is there for you. In the world of hospitality, the preposition for is always there. If you order a cheeseburger and you order it medium rare, and I deliver it medium rare. I did not do anything for you. I did what you expected. If the next time you come to Union Square Cafe for your cheeseburger, the server says, Mr. Forbes, would you like it the usual way? Now we're in the realm of hospitality because they did something for you. They recognize you. You matter to them. And that's why it's such a potent business determiner, I think. It's a differentiator. But let me go back performance. By no means do I mean to minimize how crucially important it is that we did get a really yummy plate of food on your table when you expected it. Because I would say that a failure to performance disqualifies you, but it alone does not lead to championship. What's going to lead to championship is I need to become your favorite place to dine out. And the only way to do that is to be really good at the performance and really amazing at the hospitality. Well, apropos of that, one of the things you uh, talk about is it seems a lot of restaurants do not like single diners, especially for some reason, single women. And you make the point that single person can someday be making a reservation for a party of four or perhaps a party of eight. Explain that and why the industry seems, much of it seems so obtuse that they don't like it if you're coming in just as a single well, a lot of that observation you're making, I really hope is one of the many things that uh, that COVID will retire because before restaurants got overbuilt, there were a lot of people who got into the business for, I think, the wrong reason, which is today dollars instead of really thinking about tomorrow dollars. 
and always dollars. And restaurants that look at today dollars might say, oh, that solo diner represents half of a guest check. And my landlord isn't charging me half of a rent check. So I need to maximize my yield on every single table at every single meal. The way I look at it is I need to make sure you come back. I need to make sure that you want to come back. And I think that by recognizing that uh, there are people who historically in our industry, I'm sad to say, have been discriminated against. Sometimes it's because you didn't come with enough people. Sometimes it's because you didn't look old enough. Sometimes you're absolutely right, Steve. Women have been subjected to poor tables. I would say that sadly, a certain people of color have been subjected to poor tables by some restaurants because it was deemed that they were not going to be able to spend as much money. And that's a blot on the the record of our industry. And it's it's something that if there people ask me all the time, we're, we're, you know, your industry has been hit hard by COVID. Are there any silver linings? And I do believe that if this is not the comeuppance that our industry has needed to just remember, why do we exist? We exist to provide safe places for people to restore themselves. You know, this is, this is our moment to, to really fulfill that, that promise of hospitality. Well, let's get to uh, what is happening now before we get back to your extraordinary uh, career and what we can learn from it. You were once asked, uh, this must be a nightmare, and you said, only when you can get to sleep. <laughs> and, uh, but let's uh, start with uh, employees. You took the lead when overnight revenues disappear, everyone's facing the abyss to not just, okay, lay off and hope better days come. You've been extremely active in trying to help employees. Walk us through some of the things you've done and are doing to try to keep this spirit together during an unprecedented time. Well, as, as you said earlier, there is no playbook for this. And the only playbook any of us has is really the, the values of our company and, and your own values as a compass. You know, some would say we were early to close. We closed all of our restaurants in early March, actually, before it became uh, the mandate from the city. And that was because there, there were a couple things. By luck or not luck, I had two overseas business trips planned for the month of March, one to Beijing and one to Rome. And because of those two trips that were both planned for March, I was acutely watching what was happening with COVID. And so I was watching what was happening in China very, very early on. And it was pretty clear to me that I was going to need to cancel that trip. And then, of course, Italy became the first Western country to get hit in a big way by COVID. So both of those trips canceled. And I could just see little scares happening along the way. As a matter of fact, in very early March, one of our, our cooks reported having flu-like symptoms. And in an abundance of caution, as people like to say, we sent this cook home. He couldn't get a test for three days because there were no tests available back then. And we closed the restaurant for those three days, threw out all the food. He finally got the test results back and they came back negative. He actually had the flu. He didn't have COVID. But I could just see that this was going to continue. And in those early days, you know, if you closed your restaurant and put a sign up, it would freak people out because New York didn't have many cases of COVID on March the 3rd or March the 4th. And um, 
I just said, you know what? Do it. I can see where this is going. And so we closed. And then I looked at China and you could start to see that they were starting to reopen nine weeks, nine to 11 weeks after they had first shut down. And so I started projecting ahead nine to 11 weeks and did what any business person would do and said, you know, how much cash are we going to burn through with zero revenue over at that time, I think 18 different businesses over nine to 11 weeks. And I said, we're going to go out of business if we do that. You know, a, a big, one of our bigger businesses is um, Union Square Events, as you mentioned. And Union Square Events, think about who we do business with. Big gala events like the Robin Hood uh, dinner for 4,000 people or a party in the garden for MoMA or the Whitney Museum annual gala, all canceled. Delta Airlines, we serve first class food on transcontinental flights, canceled. New York Mets, we have Shake Shack and Blue Smoke and Box Frites and El Verano Tacos and Papa Rosso Pizza in City Field, canceled. No fans. We have ballparks across the country, canceled. So I said, this is this is going to be pretty bleak and, and made what was the hardest to this day. I'm, I'm squirming as I even say these words, but the hardest business decision I hope ever to have to make. And that was to lay off essentially 90% of our company. Um, and having made that decision, think what that means. I also made a decision to, to keep 10% of our company. And that was all of our chefs and general managers and directors. Because I just said, you know, it took us 35 years to build up this talent base. I, I just cannot imagine saying goodbye to essentially the artistic directors of, of all of our restaurants. And lo and behold, we could not get back into business. And so what did we do? Well, I felt horrible. So I stopped paying myself because I knew that in addition to laying off people, I was going to have to ask the 10% we had kept to take a, a pay cut. And I could not possibly do that without taking a 100% pay cut myself. The next thing we did was we started to raise a fund. We created a, a 501c3 on the fly called USHG Hugs. And we have raised just shy of $2 million. And uh, we've granted out about $1.8 million of that in maximum chunks of $2,500, which is a sizable amount of money if you're an hourly worker in the restaurant industry. People had to apply I think we approved, uh, we have a board, we approved probably 95% of the applications. And thankfully, at that point, the federal government stepped in and started to, through the CARES Act, pay extended unemployment insurance, which took a little bit of the heat off of the responsibility we have felt. But at the same time, Steve, we said, we still need to keep the glue of communication uh, open because while you may not be an employee today, you're still a member of this family. And, you know, we kept that going for quite a long time. And, and of course, things have been very, very complicated throughout. I think the uh, Black Lives Matter movement, which I believe has uh, really become part of so many people's 
awareness in a much, much deeper way. And, and certainly in our industry, uh, our industry, this has exposed a lot of inequities in our industry. And that's been something that, that we have communicated externally uh, with our team, our former team members. Um, we have really been doing a lot of work uh, because I want to lead our industry, not ever in, in a way that you should. I don't want to advocate for what other restaurants have to do. And so with respect to uh, almost every single thing we try to do as an initiative, the best way I want to try to lead is to show that it's good business if you do it. And if other people want to follow that lead, that's completely up to them. Um, but this period of time, it's just, it's, it is really, really hard because you're, you're pushing a boulder up the hill. New York City has been slower than any city in the country to figure out a way to get restaurants back into business indoors. And well, as you've pointed out, uh, even if you do 50%, you're in a business where you need 80%. You, you do, Steve, but I would say right now that uh, usually when we use the term slippery slope, it leads to something bad. I think this could be a good slippery slope if we could just prove right now, while we still have a little bit of daylight left in the outdoor dining, you know, before it turns into very, very brisk fall season. And, and people may not know, but in New York, it's against the law to use propane heaters, in, certainly in Manhattan. And so even extending that outdoor season by a month or by a month and a half is going to be really, really hard. So we need we need some hope. And even if we could prove that we can safely seat 25% of our capacity and then prove that that's safe and then get to 50 and prove that that's safe and then get to 75, that's what I really, really hope happens. So let, let's think about the ripple effects of the restaurant industry. Yes, we're talking about several hundred thousand jobs in New York City. And well, you got linens, you got flour, you got the whole the whole ecosystem. You've got the entire ecosystem and beyond the wine and the food and the flowers and the vegetables and the linens. Um, and by the way, the landlords, because right. the, the, the amount of rancor right now between landlords and restaurant tenants is at an all-time high. And, and without knowing what the future could look like, the two parties can't even come together and have a rational negotiation. So on the employee side, you've done auctions. You uh, mentioned the grants you've done. You've also done, imagine things, uh, next on your list is the guest side. One of the things you uh, did was, and you're obviously going to make mistakes, was uh, the Hamptons, the July 4th. Quickly describe that, not because it was a mistake, but because you're constantly thinking, how do we keep things at least simmering during this uh, disaster? Well, you're right, because there was a point when we couldn't even serve on our sidewalks. New York City was slow to get to that as well. And I want to just give a lot of credit to uh, the people who did take the lead on that, one of whom happens to be an amazing architect designer we've worked with a lot named David Rockwell, who said, let me show you what it could look like to open on the sidewalk. And he did a couple prototypes, pro bono, and he showed it to the right people in the city. And, you know, pretty much single-handedly proved that this could be a beautiful and a good way to, you know, just bring some life back to the city. We were trying everything, though. Some of our restaurants, before we could open on the sidewalks, were trying to do grocery kits. Union Square Cafe was trying to sell 
wine out the door as if it were a wine store. And that, you know, it was a nice idea, but guess what? If you're not allowed to deliver the wine, it's not going to work because no one's going to pick up a case of wine on their bicycle. No one's going to walk a case of wine home in the heat of the summer. And very few people at that point wanted to take a taxi even, right? So we were trying everything. And in fact, one of the things we tried with daily provisions, we started noticing that uh, every restaurant was sending out these beautiful marketing emails that made it look like we were the last people to have a good idea. Um, and by the way, if you send out a marketing email, of course the food's going to look beautiful. And many of them were <laughs> saying, we're now delivering to the Hamptons. And we said, oh, we better get on that bus ourselves. We better do that because obviously if our guests are not in New York City and they can't come to our restaurant, they're obviously all in the Hamptons. And so we took a weekend to do this uh, with daily provisions and we just fell flat on our face. It was it was time we should have been spending on making daily provisions a better version of daily provisions here in New York City instead of trying to just follow the crowd. And, and so look here, I don't ever mind failing at an idea, but I've, I've learned the lesson from other entrepreneurs. Failing is great as long as you fail fast. It's, if when you stick with a bad idea too long, that's when it's a real mistake. More from my conversation with Danny Meyer in a moment. But first, while we are focused on our upcoming elections, other crises are brewing that could have an outsized and adverse impact on the U.S. One big one, for example, is Turkey and Greece, whose enmity goes back centuries. Both are increasingly at odds over drilling for oil and gas in the eastern Mediterranean Sea. Greece, which has numerous islands in the area, says it has sovereignty over the particular waters that hold considerable promise. Turkey is disputing this claim. Turkey recently sent a seismic vessel to carry out surveys in the area backed up by warships. Both countries have boosted naval and air forces to reinforce competing claims. Turkish strongman Recep Tayyip Erdogan declared, Turkey will continue to follow a determined and active policy in the Eastern Mediterranean. The Greeks are either going to understand the language of politics and diplomacy or in the field with painful consequences. Erdogan made disparaging remarks about what he called Greece's dilapidated military. The EU, particularly France, as well as Egypt and the United Arab Emirates are backing Greece. Turkey is holding live fire military drills off the northern coast of Cyprus, while Greece, France, Cyprus, and Italy plan to do similar exercises there. Neither Greece or Turkey want a war, but an accidental escalation could trigger a conflict. Both countries nearly went to war in 1996 over two uninhabited islands. Diplomacy won that day. But in 1974, when Greece announced it would unite with Cyprus, where there is a sizable Turkish minority, Turkey invaded the island, seizing about a third of it and eventually declaring that occupied zone a new country, the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus. Turkey has stated that any agreements reached by Cyprus are null and void unless Turkey's puppet country gives its assent. Fortunately, both sides are having technical discussions to avoid an accidental war, but tensions are still escalating. Both countries are members of NATO, and an armed conflict between the two could have catastrophic repercussions for the future of that alliance, which would delight Russia. There could be other ugly consequences. Turkey, for instance, could send refugees it has from the Syrian war, there are over four million of them, into Greece and then the rest of Europe. 
something it briefly did a few years ago. The U.S. has not yet been actively involved with this crisis, leaving it to the EU diplomats, especially the Germans, and NATO officials. But that may have to change, given the stakes involved. And now, back to my interview with Danny Meyer. One of the things you've done is you have a 36-page manual now on all the things uh, your people should be aware of to make people feel safe. That's part of your learning experience when you learn to become a CEO. You have to codify things. It's not enough just to say, do it. People have to see it in writing, that uh, this is something you take seriously. That's right. And safety, as, as I heard someone really smart say last week, safety is the new ambiance. So when you go to a restaurant today, you don't really care what art is hanging on the, the walls, whether it's inside or outside the restaurant. You want to know that it's safe. And you can't just say we're safe. You actually have to be safe. And so we are looking for every opportunity to make sure that everyone who works in our business feels safe when they come to work because they come first and that everyone who works in our restaurants knows that nothing matters more to us than making sure that our guests feel safe. And uh, this is yet another one of those frontiers that is new for us. It's very clear to me that when we do open indoors, you're going to have your temperature taken before you're seated. It's something you've probably already had done, whether it's walking into an office building or you know going to the doctor's office or wherever, but you're going to have a better time dining in the restaurant knowing that the people who are preparing your food and the people at the next table, even if it's six feet away, are also healthy. And it's up to us to take every single measure we can to make sure that if you work for us or you dine with us, that We've taken extra, extra care to make sure that, that you're in a very safe environment. Before we get to getting through COVID and the post-COVID world, someday there will be a post-COVID world. Vaccines will come. You promise? I'm not going to be, say, 9 and 11 weeks like we thought China was showing the way for, but someday may we live all so long. But uh, one thing on community, uh, you've been practicing that from the get-go, from uh, first restaurant going in an area that you realized if you did something right, it could lift the area up as well as give you a good bargain on uh, the space. But uh, quickly describe what you've done with the uh, Brookfield properties and Rethink and uh, meals in the, in the Bronx. Even at a time when you're facing disaster, you still want to show you're still part of the community. That's true. And, you know, here, here's the, the crazy thing about this, this crisis is every day, you learn something new. And each time you learn something new, it not only makes you think differently about your future, but it makes you think differently about decisions you made in the past. And one of the things I did not uh, share earlier is that we actually had to go through three different rounds of layoffs because we kept realizing that we were hitting stone walls in terms of being able to open places. And that as much as we wanted to keep every chef and every general manager and every accountant and every tech person in our company, we just couldn't. Because guess what? We couldn't open restaurants that are in museums faster than the museums could open. We couldn't open restaurants that are connected to hotels faster than hotels could open. So once we got there, we just said, oh, there's got to be something. And we had heard about this fantastic organization called Rethink that was actually founded by uh, somebody who once cooked at 11 Madison Park. And um, 
it made a lot of sense. This was a group that if they could get the corporate funding, would partner with restaurants like ours and would put us in a position where even though we couldn't open the restaurant to the public, we could open the kitchen, hire some cooks, some of our cooks, purchase some food and prepare that food, which Rethink would then distribute to New Yorkers who needed more food. In the very, very early days of the pandemic, Rethink was distributing most of its food to frontline essential workers, primarily in the hospitals, who at that point were completely overwhelmed. In this period of time, still pre-vaccine, Rethink is delivering most of its food to underserved neighborhoods. Oh, school kids. I mean, a lot of yeah. kids' big meal of the day was at school. Was at school. Was shot. Exactly right. And, and so that's something that is a crucial, crucial need. So Brookfield Properties, who we are going to be working with in a new restaurant in their project called Manhattan West, underwrote our ability to prepare 125,000 meals in three of our restaurants that could not reopen. And Rethink is delivering those meals to the South Bronx. And then furthermore, Rethink is partnering us with uh, what they call sister restaurants in the South Bronx who may not have that 36-page safety manual where we get to work with those restaurants and their chefs and put our people to work so that our people are actually coming to work, they're cooking food for the purpose of making people feel better. It's just not our usual guests. But we have now the financial means to break even while we're hiring people and purchasing food for a higher purpose. And it's a fantastic operation. Now, getting through this, uh, what are some of the immediate steps that can be taken? And then you've described that something is happening in this industry that really hadn't happened before. You're talking to each other in ways you never did before in terms of how do we go forward? Our, our industry is in many, many ways, one of the most competitive industries anywhere. And yet I think People who run restaurants and who cook in restaurants genuinely like each other a lot. And it's funny how when you're on your feet, you don't hear each other as much as you hear each other when you're all on your knees. And we're all, we're all sort of dealing with the exact same crisis at the exact same time and, and trying to figure out not only how do we get back open, but once we do reopen, how can we be a more thriving and sustainable business. Because frankly, even before COVID hit, this was an industry either because it was overbuilt or just the way we do business wasn't working. The whole rent scene, and certainly in Manhattan, has gotten completely out of whack in the last 15 years. Some people say it's because there's a, a bank and a drugstore in every corner, and that squeezed everything up. Some would say it's because of you know national chains that didn't used to exist. And national chains can often use Manhattan real estate as much as a marketing billboard, as much as a unit economic kind of play. But the other thing that has changed dramatically is, is labor, which is that the cost of, of hiring people in New York was significantly less, certainly back when I opened a restaurant like Union Square Cafe, than it is today. And so something has to give. And so, one of my colleagues said something which I appreciate. He said, the restaurant industry itself is like an elderly patient with pre-existing conditions. And COVID may have knocked them out, but they probably would have gotten knocked out anyway. And so, yes, we are looking at 
some structural changes. I think the compensation models in restaurants doesn't work. It's not sustainable. We're going to have to come to terms with the underlying rent structure because if restaurants are making 5% margins and you're basically working for the landlord for 15 years and not paying back your investors, it's all going to come crashing down. Uh, There's discussion in the industry on new ways to negotiate leases or where they do better if you do better, something where you can nurture these things? I think that's exactly what we'd all love, which is a percentage rent, which is basically that the rising tide lifts both of us. And guess what? When the tide is lower, restaurants cannot afford to keep paying full rent when the basis upon which that rent was negotiated, which was a very dense city of people who live here, people who come to their office every day, people who travel here for business, people who travel here for to go see a Broadway play or to go to an art museum. If the very basis upon which you negotiated your rent in the first place is now irrelevant, then something has to give. And so landlord didn't do anything wrong. They didn't ask for COVID any more than we did. But you know, I don't also think that landlords want all these spaces vacant. Um, right. And so a percentage rent would be a really constructive way to look at this. Getting to uh, another area, compensation, we alluded to earlier. The one reason you put in a no-tip policy was that there was a widening gap between uh, the front of the restaurant, you might say, the wait staff and kitchen staff, which also touched on uh, people of color who were more prevalent in the kitchen. And so there are some social problems building up here. You suspended uh, the tip thing during the COVID crisis, but uh, how do you think the industry is going to uh, deal with that challenge? How, and by the way, one thing I hope these state authorities and feds do is this stupid law, this is me speaking, that you can't use tips for uh, kitchen staff. It's just got to be uh, the weight. All right. That, well, that's Steve, that's the crux of the whole matter. Today's menu prices include everything except paying the people who deliver your food. Today's menu prices in most restaurants include the rent, the flowers, the linen, the food, the cooks, the dishwashers, the reservationists. And then we ask you separately to pay for the people who bring you your food and who clear your tables. So we did eliminate tipping and we eliminated it primarily because every single year I had been a restaurateur, this goes now back to 1985, menu prices have only gone in one direction and that's up. And if a tip is nothing more than a multiplier of the menu price, the good news is for tipped employees, they're making more money. But the bad news is that in a state like New York, and there's there's still a couple states like this, in a convoluted way, it's illegal to have tips shared amongst everybody in the restaurant. Waiters can share tips with other waiters. In fact, in most fine dining restaurants, when you leave a 20% tip, that goes into a tip pool that is shared amongst anyone who spends, quote unquote, 80% of their time in a guest-facing role. If you spent 79% of your time in a guest-facing role, which is crazy, I don't know who's measuring these things, uh, the restaurant can be the subject of a class action lawsuit if they were to ask tips to be shared. Tips in and of themselves are problematic if they cannot be shared because the front of the house, and I heard you point this out earlier, is typically much more white. And the back of the house that is not allowed to share tips is typically people of color in a greater percentage. And 
if we can just get New York State to do what so many other states have done, which is to say, let's get rid of this notion of front of the house and back of the house. This is what I'd love to see happen. Something I've seen in, in, from a restaurateur who I have a lot of respect for on the West Coast, a new paradigm called heart of the house. And when Steve Forbes comes to the restaurant, there's a line on the bottom of the check that says gratitude. And if Steve decides he would like to say thank you, he can put a dollar amount there, knowing that that will be shared amongst all hourly workers who made the meal happen. And I would argue that the cook who made your risotto did just as much work, maybe perspired even more than the person who brought it to your table. Taking nothing away from the role of hospitality. I, I, I want to see everybody thrive. Before we let you go, can't resist recounting a little bit of how you got interested in the food business. You, at a young age, would read menus. Your mother did something that uh, was very shrewd on her part. When you traveled abroad, you kept a diary. And uh, when you would visit places, it wouldn't be about cathedrals or museums or sites. It would be about uh, food. Yeah, well, she made, I can still remember at the age of seven, getting into trouble for not writing a diary entry one day, but she did. She never told me what I had to write about. I just had to write two pages every day. And um, I still have that diary somewhere. But what I was writing about, you're right, was food. I, was, I wrote about these flavors and smells and just sensory experiences that I had never had growing up in St. Louis. Quiche Lorraine, fraise de bois with creme fraiche, crusty baguettes, but even even in salted butter, e- even in school, you had a curiosity. You would swap sandwiches with kids to uh, get a <laughs> sense of what they were doing with food at home. I just always found that I learned a lot about people based on how they ate and what they ate, and not in a not in a judgmental way, but it was a window f- for my curiosity. You know, one of the really weird. You're, I'm probably coming across as a as a very strange person here, but. I, I could tell you every family that ate Miracle Whip versus every family that ate Hellman's uh, for their mayonnaise. And it just taught me something. Uh, I, I learned what kind of bread different families used. I, start, I just noticed those things and I found it interesting. And to this day, when I travel, really the first thing I love doing, especially in a foreign place, is to go to their marketplace and see how they eat and learn. One of the things you do uh, when you many times hire a chef, is uh, you want to travel with them and go to where they came from and learn something. Walk us through that little unusual hiring process. (laughs) Well, generally, they've been hired by the time we make our plans for the trip. But yeah, there's two things. I've always believed that people will take exactly as much interest in you as, as they believe you're taking in them. And I think when you go with a chef to where they're from, you are taking an interest in them and you're learning at the same time. Maybe you're meeting someone important to them. Maybe you're meeting their family. Maybe you're meeting their butcher that they grew up with. Maybe you're going to one of their favorite restaurants. And the more you know about somebody and, and how they grew up, I, I used to say that uh, I'd like my gravestone to be engraved. He majored in chefs. Because it's a very interesting breed of people. I love chefs, and I love how every one of them speaks a slightly different language. But when you cook for other people, 
and you're really, really good at it, it started somewhere and it usually starts with trying to share with other people something that had touched you in your life. And the number of stories you get about, you know, this was my grandmother's recipe. This was something that my mom used to cook. This was my dad's favorite version of X. This is something we would eat every year for Christmas. You know, but if I'm going to ask somebody to be cooking for hundreds of people professionally in one of our restaurants, it sure helps to know where they come from and what speaks to them. And there's been some really, really good ones. Michael Romano, who is a chef at Union Square Cafe for many, many years, I think for 16 years uh, before he retired, he had a French culinary background. He was the chef at La Caravelle. But before that, uh, he grew up, Michael Romano, in the um, Italian Harlem, and his family would go to Rayo's uh, for dinner. They got one of those prize tables. And going to Italy with Michael was unleashing an entire part of his life that he had actually been sublimating because he came of age as a chef back at a time when you had to be a French chef to be taken seriously, and Italian chefs were not taken that seriously. And it really sort of liberated him to get back in touch with his own roots. And that was a really, really great thing. And that's the type of experience I love to have. That, uh, that is fascinating, liberating people, because your own experience, when you were interested in doing this, maybe being a chef was okay, but restaurateur was sort of, uh, just didn't do it in those days. Describe the extraordinary transformation that uh, things that people look their nose down on uh, now seen as uh, great, great things. Well, I, I, I am proud that our industry is not looked down on as it once was. And, and it's, it's true that I, I don't hope anyone has to go through what I did with my own feelings with my family, which were, I almost embarked down the path of being a lawyer or maybe a journalist. I just, I don't want young kids to go through what I did to almost take, I would have been the world's worst lawyer. I would have hated it. And I was going down that path, not because I wanted to, but because I thought I was supposed to. And it, it had never dawned on me that I actually would be allowed to become a restaurateur. Because back in the, the 1980s, it just wasn't a natural, entrepreneurial, validated career choice. It just wasn't. And today it is. And I feel really, really proud about that on behalf of a lot of young people who do have a heart for hospitality, who do have an interest in wine and food and design and building community and all the things that restaurants at their best can do a great job of. I, uh, I, I was doing a talk uh, a couple of weeks ago with some students at the Culinary Institute of America. And can you imagine how they feel they, they put their life savings into this great culinary education and they're looking out at the landscape right now and they're saying, you know, what's, what's, what's happening next? And I actually, I said, you know what? I, I couldn't be more optimistic for you than I am right now, but you're going to have to have a little bit of patience. And my advice was very different than it would have been 20 years ago. 20 years ago, I would have said, move to New York and get a job in a New York restaurant because you need a New York restaurant on your resume. Not only do you not need a New York restaurant on your resume because there's great restaurants everywhere, move somewhere besides New York for the next year. And then when you come back to New York, the opportunities are going to be amazing. Everybody's going to want to hire you. If you want to open your own restaurant, what a great time to do it. You won't have anyone to lay off. 
because you never hired anyone in the first place. <laughs> you won't have any back rent to pay because you never had a lease. And whatever lease you do sign, you're going to get a great deal. And it might even be a fully built out restaurant. And so think of all the money you can save. In a year and a half, New York is going to be the place to be for restaurant people. That's great. Describe before we let you go the lily pad theory. Boy, we live that every single day. The lily pad theory basically says that the average person in any organization or in life doesn't really love change. Change affects your ego. It affects your muscle memory. It affects what you think of yourself and what others think of you and coming to work. And so if you basically say change has to happen for any organization to advance, you then say, okay, well, who needs to know the information and when do they need to know it? And so the lily pad theory is this kind of crazy story I made up, which is that you've got eight frogs in a brook and they're each sitting on a little rock. And a little boy comes up to the brook and he throws a rock in the water, which is like change. And the ripples that are created by him throwing that rock in the water hit each one of the frogs while they're sitting on the rocks. And they're not very happy about that. And the boy gets sort of a kick out of this. So he says, I'm going to get a bigger rock. And this is a bigger kind of change. And he throws that. And now the water washes over the frogs. And they're really upset at this point. And his friend watches him do this. And his friend has a boulder. And his friend says, let me show you how to do this the right way. And before he throws the boulder in the water, big change. He tells all the frogs, on the count of three, I want you to jump. And on the count of three, he says, jump. He throws the boulder in. The water washes over the rocks, but the frogs are up in the air. And they come back down and they don't drown because they were communicated to in advance of the change. And I realize in my own career as a leader, it doesn't make change easy, but people are willing to go with it if the change did not happen to them. And you have to explain to people why the change is happening for them. Now, your timing of your question of what I think is the last question of our conversation is amazing because tomorrow I'm going to be leading an in-person, socially distanced leadership retreat, and there will just be 10 of us. And I'm going to be talking about a lot of organizational change. And if I do it in a way where I think about the lily pads, who needs to know, when do they need to know it, so that the change doesn't happen to them, but can happen for them? It doesn't mean that change is easy, because the frog still has to jump. But at least the frog isn't going to get blown away by water, because I, I didn't have the self-awareness to let them know what was about to happen, and why. Danny, uh, you've exemplified in your whole career about uh, winning in a very positive way. And thank you uh, for your time and uh, for your optimism. Uh, if you can be optimistic, we all should be. Thank you. Steve, thank you and real pleasure to join you. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it. 